Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Hello, welcome to NeuroRounds. This is uh, round 20. Today we'll be talking about synaptic transmission, action potentials, um, and then communication along the neuron and then moving on to neural networks. Um, so we've been talking previously about what certain parts of the brain are uh, responsible for, but uh, not to give you the idea this is uh, phrenology or anything, it's, the brain is very interconnected. So today we're gonna talk about some of the networks um, that um, are used. So first, first I'm gonna start with um, the neuron. And so I just wanna go over again some of the aspects of the neuron. So you have the soma or cell body of the neuron. It's kinda of like an information processor. And then you have the dendrites here that kind of receive information. So they're like the input, the mouse, and the keypad of your computer. Then you have the axon here, and it conveys information out to um, the terminal buttons. So this is the output of the neuron. So the axon is um, usually myelinated. So that's like a fatty uh, band that goes around the neuron that acts as insulation. So when they're myelinated, then they use the electrical signal can move faster. Um, when you have problems with myelination, you start to have problems like multiple sclerosis, uh, where and this slows down the communication of the neuron. In the um, terminal buttons here, at the end of the axons, you have synaptic vesicles here, and those contain neurotransmitters. So when those are uh, released by the action potential, they then go into the synapse here, and then they are received by receptors on the postsynaptic neuron, so presynaptic neuron, postsynaptic neuron, and that facilitates electrical activity of the postsynaptic neuron. So that's in brief. So let's go in a little bit in detail here. So I'm talking about an action potential, just so you know from the electrical standpoint, an electrical potential is the amount of work necessary to separate two oppositely charged particles. So in a neuron, you have a potential exists by virtue of the charge that exists on either side of the neuron uh, membrane. So you have this extracellular fluid here, which is the synapse, and then you're inside the cytoplasm of the neuron here. So on either side, um, you have more uh, so sodium on the outside and more potassium on the inside of the cell. And then you have a resting potential of about 70, it's negative, negative 70. And these are ion channels here. So because the neuron is polarized, the ions can't move unless they're going through an ion channel. Um, and so whenever the ion moves through the ion channel, that can uh, produce the energy. So um, on the uh, neuron, the sodium channels are usually closed and the potassium channels are usually open. So this leaves the uh, option for potassium to generally leave the cell. And so when it does that, it makes the inside of the cell more negatively charged. And so at that point, then, when it's more negatively charged, then there's pressure on the sodium from the outside to move in because of the concentration gradient of positive versus negative. And it's also electrostatic charge. So 
Um, that's how it is usually, but then you can mediate which channels are open and closed with neurotransmitters. So when a neurotransmitter is released from the presynaptic neuron, um, it can have one of two possible effects on the postsynaptic neuron. So either you can depolarize it, um, which is where you make the inside of the cell less negative, and so this is when it's more excited and more likely to fire, or it can hyperpolarize it, which makes it um, more negative, and so it's less likely to fire, so it's inhibited. So based on the neurotransmitter, it can affect the ion channels. So when you had the polarization happens and opens, so the um, neurotransmitter um, is, is received by an anotropic receptor, and then that can then open or close a voltage-gated ion channel. And so if the influx or outflux of the ions reaches thresholds, so like I said, uh, normally you're at 70, negative 70, and then usually to reach threshold is negative 55. And so when it reaches that, um, then you will trigger an action potential. So this is your resting potential here, and then once you reach the threshold here, so you're gradually changing the charge of the neuron, and then once you reach 55, it will then trigger the action potential. Um, then you have a, um, and then there's a, a moment of time when you can't then uh, trigger that neuron. Um, but what happens when you uh, trigger an action potential, it goes all the way down the synapse and you're opening up all the sodium and potassium channels all the way along the axon and changing the voltage-gated um, channels all the way down the axon. And then the result is that you then open up these voltage-gated calcium channels and then the calcium is like a messenger. So it goes into the um, neuron and it attaches uh, to the vesicles and that tells the vesicles to attach to the um, membrane and then release the neurotransmitter. And then when it does that, the cycle then continues and that affects the receptors on the postsynaptic neuron. So this occurs neuron by neuron all the way through to communicate a signal. So that's fairly elaborate and you think that might take a lot of time to go neuron to neuron, um, but actually the chemistry operates in picoseconds, um, which is a trillionth or trillionth of a second. So very, very fast. Um, and of course there are all kinds of, you know, neurons are connected to lots of other neurons. So this is a neuron, it's a, attached to all these other neurons. And so just because it's going neuron to neuron doesn't mean there's also not parallel processing going on. So I just wanted to go over Usually you have um, the axon goes attached onto a dendrite. So the dendrite is receiving, this is the axon. So axon dendrite is a one kind of connection. You can also have an axosomatic, so where the um, axon attaches onto the cell body itself. You can have axon-axon connections and dendrite-dendritic connections. So these are all the different possible kind of neural connections you can have. As the information is moving along, the neurons. So that's how each neuron talks to each other. But then we want to scale it up. So how does the whole brain talk to other parts of the brain? So um, throughout the history of learning how the brain works, there are different theories that were put forward. And one theory was this holistic theory. And this theory, as you can see, it's the first panel here. So you see all these nodes here are connected to all the other nodes. And so what this thinking was, is that all the regions are mutually interconnected and they have equipotentiality. So any part of the brain can learn how to do any, other, any kind of function. 
And so, and the condition results from a simultaneous activity of all of these nodes kind of acting uh, coherently as a whole. And what happens, they thought, is that if you damage one area, so this area here, well, then you just kind of reduce the amount of workload the whole brain can do. So the, um, the network redistributes the workload, but you just can't, there's not a, it can't do as much work as it could beforehand. Um, we know this is not how the brain works <laughs> because of lesion studies, and we know that there are some parts of the brain that are responsible for specific functions. So we can rule out the holistic theory. Another theory, speaking of which, is a localizationist theory. So they thought here, where these nodes are, and they're not connected at all. So they think that various functions are carried out by discrete independent regions. Independent regions. So this is the kind of phrenology idea, where you have one part of the brain is responsible for this, another part responsible for that. And so according to this theory, if you had a lesion to one area, then that region is just lost, and you've completely lost all of that kind of function. Um, but we also know that this is not how the brain works, and it it's not phrenology, and there's lots of networks, and the brain does communicate. So that brings us to the associationist models, where you can see here. So there are certain nodes that are connected here, and this is uh, organized into parallel distributed networks around what are called cortical epicenters. Um, so, for example, you'll have uh, the epicenters for language would be Broca's and Wernicke's, but they are connected. Um, so, what this uh, theory says is that you have primary motor functions that are largely localized. So, you've seen this image uh, many times, but so here you have V1, N1, and S1, and A1. So, those are the primary visual, motor, um, sensory, and uh, auditory centers. So, those are localized. However, there are higher functions in the peach regions, which we've also gone over before, which are the association regions. And so you have the higher level functions distributed across those association regions. So what they think is that if there's a lesion and it affects a certain area, well, then you will have damage to that area. And if it's a primary function, then you will lose that. But you also have partial dysfunction to the, connection to to the connected regions because, again, it's all connected. So you will have aphasia if you affect Broca's area specifically, but also if there's damage along the pathway connecting Broca's and Wernicke's. So that makes sense? Okay, great. So when we're talking about neural networks, they've been working out these ideas for a long time. One of the um, main guys was Maynard in the late 1800s, and he had this great image. Uh, he's trying to explain the network of a child burning their hand in a flame, learning to avoid the flame. So he, in his um, opinion, when a child reaches for a flame, then there is a, a spinal reflex to withdraw the hand. So that all happens within the spine here. So you can see he touched the flame here, comes back, and he withdraws the arm. But then he thought, well, there's a sight of the flame, and then the pain you felt all kind of happens afterwards, right? You're kind of reflecting on it. And then you withdraw the hand. So in his um, description of the brain, then you have here, A is a visual center, so that's pretty close to where it is. B, cutaneous sensation, so that's fairly close, he was pretty right. And then C, he thought was an area that was an association area, um, that was a convergence of sensory and uh, translating that into motor planning. And so he said, as you go through this whole network here, you see the flame, you felt it, and then there's the association of putting it together. And then so in the future, 
you'll remember what you felt. And so you won't have to burn yourself to know you should avoid it in the future. So that's kind of the um, beginnings of neural networks. So long time after him, we have Mesolam's large-scale networks. We'll go through this in more detail. But um, these are some of the main networks that we know today. So A here is a language network, and it connects uh, Broca's and Wernicke's. We've gone over this. Um, we have B here along the bottom uh, is the face object identification network. It connects occipitotemporals to temporal polar regions back to front. We also had the executive functioning network over here in C. So it goes from the front uh, all the way back to the parietal, uh, lateral prefrontal, orbital frontal, and posterior parietal cortex. You have the spatial attention networks. And notice it's the other side of the head. So this is the right side of the brain uh, connecting the uh, you know, posterior parietal with the frontal eye fields, um, the cingulate gyrus. And then you have the memory and emotion network. So down here in the limbic system, um, connecting the hippocampus and the amygdala. So those, those are the five main large-scale networks that we have today. So how are these networks connected? So there are certain fibers. So I said myelin goes around the axon, and so the white matter is these myelinated uh, fibrous tracts um, from the neurons. So there are three kind of um, categories of these fibers. You have association fibers, which are in the green here, and they connect brain regions within a hemisphere. Uh, they play a role in lots of things, language, visual, spatial processing, memory, emotion, praxis. Praxis is just a, a skilled motor movement, so just think of apraxia, not being able to move uh, a skill or kind of mind what you do with a tool, if you will. You have commissural fibers that connect between the hemispheres, so you see them in red here. Um, the biggest one being the corpus callosum, obviously. And then you have projection fibers in the blue, and those connect the cortex to subcortical um, regions. So we'll go through some of these. So I apologize with the image quality here. Uh, so some of the association pathways that are uh, really important are the uncinet basilicus here. Uh, so it connects the uh, temporal lobe with the lateral uh, orbital frontal. So it's part of the limbic system involved in memory, emotions, and language. Arcuate fasciculus over here, obviously connecting Broca's and Wernicke's um, areas involved in language, obviously. On the left side and on the right side, it does visuospatial processing and prosody and semantics. So on the left side, it's choosing words, and then on the uh, right side, it's how you say it. Okay, some other ones are the cingulum. So it's all here in the uh, middle. So it connects the anterior temporal lobe to the orbital frontal cortex, so it goes all the way around here. Um, involved, it's part of the limbic system involved in attention, memory, and emotion. Down here you had the inferior frontal occipital facilicus. So we're taking occipital to the front, so this plays a role in reading, attention, and visual processing. Inferior longitudinal, longitudinal facilicus down here. Um, connects temporal and visual areas, so we're just kind of to the uh, temporal polar areas, amygdala, hippocampus. Plays a role in object and face recognition, visual processing, and language. So these are some of the main pathways, association, so within the hemisphere. The commissural pathways, as I said before, the biggest one is the corpus callosum. Connects the two hemispheres. 
Um, it's, you can divide it up into three different sections. You have the genu, which is in the front, connects the prefrontal uh, regions and the orbital frontal regions. You have the body in the middle, obviously connecting the parietal regions. And the posterior portion is a, is a splenium, and that connects the occipital lobes. Uh, the anterior commissure, back here, uh, connects the temporal lobes, amygdala, and olfactory bulbs, so part of the limbic system. You have projection pathways that again connect cortex to subcortical structures. Um, so the fornix is this little one right here, um, connects hippocampus, mammillary bodies, hypothalamus, so endocrine, uh, and then memory, part of the limbic system. The internal capsule is a very large one here, and it essentially does ascending fibers to the thalamus from all the sensory uh, information we get, and then descending fibers from the frontal parietal down basal ganglia and brainstem. So it's really important for motor control. Uh, again, conveyed sensory information to cortex and to control movement. So those are your main pathways. So now I'm gonna go over a few pathway disorders. Um, so for example, auditory hallucinations and schizophrenia um, is a, can be considered a pathway disorder such that there's hyperfunction locally in Broca's and Wernicke's areas, but there's hypo or low connectivity between the two so you can't place it. You have a visual hypoemotionality, which is a visual limbic disconnection syndrome affecting uh, the inferior longitudinal facilicus fibers. It's a picture of it here. Uh, we've talked about unilateral neglect multiple times, usually on the right side, affects parietal cortex, frontal lobe, uh, temporal cortex, occipital, so all that on the right side makes you kind of not address the left side of your environment. Okay, so there are some specific ones for the frontal lobe. Um, you have a motor syndrome. So if you have lesions to the primary motor cortex and its connections, obviously you'll have uh, trouble controlling the contralateral side, motor deficits, the limbs and face. If you have a lesion to the arcuate facilicus, then you'll have the, uh, it, you'll affect the ability to uh, do learned purposeful movements. Um, if you have lesions to the frontal eye field or wrist connections, you'll have gazed abnormalities. Uh, lesions to the medial frontal lobe and the, its colossal connections, you'll have anarchic hand syndrome. So this is where a hand will move around as if it has its own will. So it's doing things, you're not telling it to do things. Um, you can also have abnormalities along the precentral, uh, precentral region that can cause Jacksonian march. This is a seizure disorder that kind of goes along the motor homunculus. So you'll start at the hand and it'll move along uh, the homunculus. Okay, you can also have cognitive syndrome. So we've talked a little bit about frontal lobe syndrome before, but so the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex has a lot of connections throughout the brain, all the way to the you know, parietal lobe, temporal, basal ganglia, and it's connected by the cingulum here, your cingulum, arcuate facilicus, internal capsule, uh, superior longitudinal, longitudinal facilicus. And so if there's any uh, lesion along any of those pathways, you'll have a variety of problems like memory deficit, uh, poor serial motor uh, sequencing, poor motor inhibition, poor uh, abstract reasoning, poor goal-directed behavior, including planning, uh, role learning, hierarchical organization, and switching. You'll be easily distractible and you'll have slowed mental flexibility as well. Okay, you have abulic syndrome. Um, this is a problem of the medial prefrontal cortex. 
It's being connected to the medial parietal, occipital, and temporal lobe by the cingulum and superior longitudinal fasciculus. Um, usually the lesions will manifest in apathy, loss of motivation, reduced goal-directed behavior, and uh, ability to sustain effort. You'll have behavioral syndrome. Uh, this is usually orbital frontal and its connections. Um, these lesions manifest in personality changes, disinhibition. You'll be socially inappropriate, sexual preoccupations. Um, some other interesting things is that they automatically imitate what the examiner is doing without being asked to do so, because uh, then they have no impulse control. And they'll also have reduced empathy, and they'll be uh, distractible and might have depression or mania. So if you're moving back to the parietal lobe um, in those kind of connections, you have disorders of somatosensory and tactile function. So the postcentral gyrus, which is a primary somatosensory cortex, is connected to the thalamus. So if you have any kind of lesions along that pathway, uh, then you'll have impaired pain sensation, temperature, touch, vibration. Sometimes you may have feelings of tingling or burning that aren't real, numbness, pins and needles. Um, you'll have altered proprioception, so you can't um, know where your arm is in space or your body is in space. You'll also have disorders of motility. If you, have, uh, if you disrupt the connection between the parietal and the occipital and frontal, via the superior longitudinal and arcuate basilicus. So these usually manifest in um, uncoordinated movements. So they lack speed, smoothness, uh, appropriate direction. Uh, so you can't carry out visually guided movements. So ataxia, uh, skilled movements, tool use, and you can't put together one or two dimensional objects. So kind of spatial reasoning problems. A few others just to mention, um, obviously uh, of the parietal lobe, you can have disorders of spatially guided attention. You can also have disorders of symbolic thought and memory. So if you'll see some regions highlighted with the dipoles or the right parietal, you can then ask them if, how they're doing in math. Um, if you have trouble getting the symbols in the right places, it can assemble symbolic manipulations. So you have problems with math, impaired reading and writing. So just knowing where things are relative to each other. You can also have complex visual defects uh, so you can't realize scenes, you have derealization de syndromes, out-of-body experiences where you don't feel like what's happening is happening to you, and then um, balance syndrome, which you talked about, so uh, simultechnosia and optic ataxia. So you're looking at one part of the, of the scene, you can't put it together with other parts of the scene. Um, obviously, other ones like um, the temporal lobe, if you have any kind of disruption along the acute facilicus, you'll have aphasias, and we've talked about many of those before. So that's just a very brief introduction into networks. Um, hopefully in the coming weeks, we'll go into more depth on that. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.